Welcome to episode 160. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Fact. Watching horror movies can burn up to 200 calories, just like a 30-minute walk. Scary movies burn more calories than any other genre. Aren't you so glad that you're a horror movie watcher? (laughs) If you like what you're hearing, we would love it. If you hit up Apple Podcasts and not only rate the show, but write a review, say, hey, tell us about yourself. We will read your review at the top of the show. It's such an awesome way to connect with you. Leo, who do we have, man? We have one from Jay Blanton writes... The best horror podcast. The Boo Crew brings the best in horror to the podcast waves. The killer conversations with killer guests make this a must listen for any horror fan. After listening, you will find yourself thinking, I can't even save myself. (laughs) That's right, Leo. Woo! And what's the rating that that Jay Blanton hooked us up with, Leo? Five stars. Woo! Oh, my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go! Woo! Stabbing westward, everybody. (laughs) Soundtrack of every horror film in the 90s. Every teen horror film, right? Apparently our soundtrack. I guess so. It's becoming our theme song, our unofficial theme song. Right. Uh, When I saw that review, I was like, oh, I know where this is going. And it went exactly where I thought it was going. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Mm. Thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time to write us. We really appreciate it. And I'm so glad you love Trevor being crazy. Hey, Leo was all over that, Leo, too. That was impressive. I, I had Both to. of you. <laughs> Both of you. It just puts you right in that groove. You're just, you, can't, you, can't, you can't help yourself. That's, that's right. You can't save yourself. Lauren, you're up next. Who you got? I have Cody J. Great, great, great. This podcast was a great discovery through the band Spirit Box's interview. Oh, I love Spirit Box, by the way. Um, I've been out of the loop on horror stuff recently, so it's great hearing about everything coming out and what's coming up. Even the horror homework. I now have a long list of stuff to watch. Their interviews and killer intros are so good and enjoyable. Much love to you all. Rating five stars. Yeah. Thank you, Cody. Thank you so much. That's so nice. By the way, Cody's a badass artist. I don't know if you guys have seen his stuff online. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cody Jimenez, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, him. And then who else? We had Joe Risotto's artist and Macy Bake. I mean, they're all. Incredible artist, man, who listened to our show. And yeah, he's one of them. I love all his artwork. And, and what about Sammy, the guy? Sammy Ruiz. Yes. He's another one. We have that so many amazing. great artists that listen and support our show. And I love them all. Yep. And then yeah. when they hear us sing Stabbing Westward, they're just madly scribbling all over their stuff. Is that is that the effect that we have? <laughs> I guess. I, I really. Like pentagrams. <laughs> It really says a lot that they're sticking with us, even <laughs> that, that through that. That certainly does, and we appreciate it. So, <laughs> Cody and Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to write such thoughtful reviews. And if you want yours read on the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and find The Boo Crew. This time around, we are joined by one of the coolest actors, musicians, and creators out there right now, Alex Esso, and legendary director and creator and friend of the show, Darren Lynn Bowsman. They join us to talk about their new film, Death of Me, at time of release in theaters on demand and digital October 2nd. They get into building the lore of this hypnotic and mysterious world that expertly unfolds before your very eyes. Darren reveals some secrets from the upcoming Spiral, the Book of Saw, now on the slate for 2021. Alex gets into her iconic scenes in the film Starry Eyes, her work in Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep, the upcoming Bly Manor and Midnight Mass, as well as the fantastic horror film she wrote called Homewrecker that's available to stream now. Episode 160 starts now. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for ah! Horror Homework. We're going to go around the room and around the world wide web all the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown Eagle Rock! 
<laughs> to each yes. highlight a horror flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth the revisit. And I'm telling you guys, and Lauren, I know I was having this conversation with you last night. I don't think there is any genre that releases as many films every week than horror. Okay, but this is what I said. What if we don't know? But there's like, an- I don't know shit about comedy. What if there's like a million comedy or romantic comedy movies coming out that we just, we're not part of that circle, so we don't know. I don't see a romantic comedy app yeah. called Cuddle. Cuddle? Well, if Shudder's for horror, I would assume the romantic comedy one would <laughs> be geez. called Cuddle. <laughs> oh my Right? God. I don't see a drama <laughs> app. Right? Right. Well, have you looked? No. We just know about it. No, the we no- wouldn't. You should, you would have the notebook on Cuddle. Download <laughs> Cuddle tonight. Oh my God. No. Look, the Hallmark channel is raging right now, but that's all. There's not, they can't even touch horror, you know? Horror is just dumping so much good stuff right now. Yeah, I mean, there is so much horror. It's amazing. It's weird it's to think that thing. we're the only genre yeah. that is like giving birth to things like by the second. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Yeah. That's right. It's a very prolific yeah. time in horror. And I mean, it's yeah, a, we're yeah. obviously right in the thick of it with Halloween and everything. Leo, we got a giant 12 foot tall skeleton. Yeah, it's <laughs> on the front. It's like it's 12 feet tall, like legit 12 feet tall. It's, it's crazy. It's like oh, the size of the house. I'm going to post pictures because it's that crazy. <laughs> Have you seen this thing, Leo? They sell it no. at the they sell it at the, the hardware store. People are trying to find it. Lauren, I think, ordered it. Well, you know, when did you order it? Months ago? Yeah, I did. And it's that it's like. A massive box. It came in like I could live in that box. It's huge. Yeah. Oh damn. It's crazy. You have to assemble it while it's lying down, and then you hoist it up, and it's oh, wow, cra- dude. It's crazy tall. Yeah, I'm. I'm so sending you pictures right now. By the way, see that great friend of the show, Chelsea Stardust, who directed the amazing Satanic Panic and Into the Dark, all yeah. that we destroy, is part of an amazing new. Very festive Halloween album called Revenge of the Killer Sounds of Halloween. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's really cool, man. Not only does she make an appearance, but so does Amanda Weiss, who played Tina in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Cast members from Reanimator the Musical and Slashed. And all the songs are written and composed by writer, director, and actor Sean Keller. And I just got to say, it's such a blast and somehow manages to capture that magic and whimsy of Halloween's past. Like it was discovered buried in a creepy cemetery and lost for like 60 or 70 years. We absolutely love it. And it will help you get into the spooky spirit. You can check it out on Sean Keller's Bandcamp page. And Leo will have a link over at TalesFromTheBrewCrew.com. Yes, definitely. I just got that photo. The one of the skeletons. Skeleton. Oh, yeah, Jesus. right? It's fucking... That thing's as tall as your house. Isn't that crazy? It is. It really is. It's crazy. Can you imagine us putting that together? That right there was real fucking horror. Oh, Because man. it came broken. There was a broken piece, and we still... Of course it came broken. Everything comes broken to us. <laughs> That's crazy. This is a little taste of Revenge of the Killer Sounds of Halloween, by the way. Liesel Van Tassel, don't lose your head, right here. Sounds old, right? Yeah. They did a good job. Yeah. Awesome. I like it. So yeah, it's all—all all these thirteen songs are all made by thirteen fake bands that they put together for this. It's so fun. That's awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to download that. Yeah, That's so awesome. cool. Revenge of the Killer Sounds of Halloween. Leo, horror homework time, man. What you got, dude? I thought I was gonna watch one thing, and it turns out that it's a series. So, have you guys started watching Ratchet on Netflix? Ah, we have not. Everybody we know has. We have not got around to it. <laughs> well, I'm only going to quickly talk about episode one, because that's all I got through. It's pretty crazy, man. Crazy, crazy, crazy. It stars Sarah Paulson, and we know her from American Horror Story, and you know, and then also that O.J. Simpson uh, you know, miniseries that she did as well. So yeah, she's on this Netflix series, Ratchet. The series is definitely horror adjacent, okay? With some shock value scenes and dialogue, and it plays out as an ominous, dark, suspenseful drama. So it stars Sarah Paulson as the main character, Nurse Mildred Ratched. It stars Finn Whitrock as uh, Edmund Tolson. And you're also going to see Cynthia Nixon and Sharon Stone and Vincent D'Onofrio Jeez. and Amanda Plummer. Yeah, this cast is just gets bigger and bigger, man. 
Believe it or not, this is actually based on the character Nurse Ratched from the novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey and from the 1975 uh, Saul's Anthony movie with the same title. So it's something we've seen before, this character, okay? From that original cast from that movie in 1975, look at this cast. We have Michael Berryman, okay, from Wes Craven's The, Hill, the Hills Have Eyes. Scatman Crothers, who played Holloran from The Shining. You have Danny DeVito. You have Christopher Lloyd, who's in Back to the Future. Jack Nicholson. Brad Dourif, who was in Child's Play, The Voice of Chucky, and Louise Fletcher played Nurse Ratchet, okay, from the original movie. So the movie won every Oscar in every, every main category. So it won for Best Picture, Best Actor went to Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher won Best Actress, Brad Dourif won Best Supporting Actor, by the way. So this movie is basically about Nurse uh, Mildred Ratchet, who's looking to seek employment at the Lucia State Hospital as it prepares to admit a new psychiatric patient, the notorious killer, Edmund Tolson. So the series kicks off right off the bat, wastes no time with a really brutal murder scene right off the bat. Crazy. It just sets the tone for like what's going on. It takes place in post-World War II, possibly the late 40s, as her character references that she used to work in the South Pacific Theater during, that, during the war. And I only mention that because you, know, you see the old cars, and I wasn't sure if it was the 30s or 40s or 50s, so now you get the sense that, okay, it's late 40s, possibly early 50s. So the main set of characters so far, they seem like each of them are dealing with some sort of issue that, you know, you don't understand what's going on with them yet. We get hints about them, but we don't know what's truly going on with their lives. I'm sure that's all going to unfold. Now, Nurse Ratchet comes in to this hospital and sees the opportunity to take advantage of the situation. She get, uh, her ultimate motives are unclear as this is just episode one. But by the end of the first episode, you get a taste of what she's possibly up to, but we just don't know why yet. And I'll tell you, um, the actor is superb. The cinematography is amazing. It has all the ingredients of your typical Ryan Murphy production. There are some cool elements with color coordination and possibly hidden meaning behind it. The music, the score is really awesome. And like I said, there's a lot of mystery as to all these characters and what's really going on. But it's going to all unfold, of course, over the course of whatever, eight, ten episodes. And uh, I just hope the narrative stays straight and doesn't end up, you know, with some weird side UFO story, aliens or creatures. He kind of does that with American Horror Story, you know, which I don't think will happen in this series. I think it's going to be straight, but I, 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 I think it's going to get very dark very quick. So, yeah, if you're into this, check it out. It's something new. I want to say it's like a little, you know, it's a little pre-party here before we get to... Uh, the Haunted of Bly Manor, you know, it's something to watch. So uh, definitely check it out. Ratchet on Netflix. Very fun. Well, Lauren and I also checked out something that is horror adjacent and something also on Netflix. If you're a horror fan, there's a lot of stuff in it for you to unpack, we believe. Would yeah. you say, Lauren? I would say, even though it's not technically... So, yeah, it's not a horror not. Yeah, production by any stretch of the imagination, but it does have themes of mystery, and we'll, we'll tell you exactly why we think, as a horror fan, you probably love this. It's called Enola Holmes, directed by Harry Bradbeer, stars Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things, and Helena Bonham Carter, who is just iconic. She's been in Fight Club, yes. Sleepy Hollow, Sweeney Todd, the Harry Potter movies, Bellatrix, and Alice in Wonderland. Basically an endless list of things she's Like my in. favorite movies. Yeah. Everything awesome stars Helena Bonham Carter. So it's based on the young adult fiction series of books starting back in 2006, written by Nancy Springer, following the 14-year-old sister of famous detective Sherlock Holmes. And the plot of this one on the day of her 16th birthday, Enola wakes up to find her mom, played by Helena Bottom Carter, has disappeared. She goes on a wonderful adventure to find out what happened. Why you will like it as a horror fan, besides Millie Bobby Brown and Helena Bottom Carter? Well, okay, first of all, I'm going to talk about how this is not going to get a sweet Scream Award because it's like two hours That's right. long, which it doesn't seem that long. But I mean, when you have four kids and you're watching it, it does seem that long because it took us maybe four hours to watch the whole damn two thing. days. Yeah, two days. That That's what we're dealing with here. Two days to watch fucking two hours. I'm so sorry. I am just so over it. And I'm just like, this is a fun movie. Just sit and watch it. But no, sorry. Anyways, let's talk about why. 
uh, we love this movie. Well, I love it personally because, I mean, first of all, the sets were amazing. That's I right. love anything Victorian and old and just the decor. And I swear, I mean, I wish I knew were those actual locations or were they, did they build the sets? Because they look right. like they're actual buildings. I like mysteries, like trying to figure out if I have it right. And usually I don't have it right. And just watching the story unfold and, you know, and I think also if you have kids, it's a really good movie, like older kids, that it's really about empowering women. And the role that Millie Bobby Brown plays is a really strong character. And she's just a badass. And I like that. She's like an expert in jujitsu. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, and Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, that arc of storytelling. And also the the mechanics of how they told it was kind of like that, too, like playing with books and different fonts when they transition into different scenes and they'd use paper models and things throughout. So, yeah, as Lauren was saying, creepy and amazing Victorian houses and apartments. That's a big box checked for any horror fan. The costumes, and they were made by Oscar-nominated Consolata Boyle, Millie Bobby Brown, and Helena Bottom Carter, obviously. The mechanics of the storytelling, and the way that Enola breaks the fourth wall a lot. She speaks directly to the camera. So does yeah. Helena as well. And those, that, actually, that idea I had read was Millie's herself. Oh, wow. Who's a producer oh, wow. on the film. And she actually told... The director, this is, this is what I want to do. I have this idea where we break the fourth wall. I'll talk to the camera. That's really cool. That's cool. Yeah. Great props. Oh, God. That props. amazing Scrabble board. Oh, my gosh. The handmade secret decoder. Oh, there's so all many All sorts things. of cool stuff. That, like, box <laughs> that she has that she opens up and yeah. all that cool stuff's in it. Oh, God. So fun. They already have an idea for the sequel. So I think this is going to be, I think it's going to be a franchise. It should be. Yeah. And her daughter, obviously 11, loved it. Oh my God. 11. God. Wait, our daughter's 11 11 and she's in, oh yeah. God. Let me tell you about how much we hear about Stranger Things a day. Yeah. Like a million times. Is she caught up? Has she watched them all yet? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. She is patiently waiting for season four. When is that (laughs) out? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Leo, do you know? Season four of Stranger Things? No. They were looking for extras, I think, to finish. I think they were almost done. And then I saw a post that they were looking for extras in Georgia. And Scarlett was ready to like fly to Georgia to be an extra (laughs) in Stranger Things. That's funny. So yeah, the horror adjacent Enola Holmes. I think there's enough in it for horror fans to really get into. Nice. And a good bridge to Bly Manor. If you're into that old spooky houses. This is Darren Lynn Bowsman. And this is Alex Esso. You are listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. I can't even remember how we got back to the room last night. I must have taken some photos. There's a video two and a half hours long. See if we can figure out what happened. Alex, where are you? I'm in Vancouver. Darren, what's up? It's so good to see you. I know. I've not seen you in forever. How are you? Forever. Oh, awesome. Thank you. I think it was really, wasn't it? It was literally the reshoots or the additional shoots the last time I saw you, like Mm -hmm. two years ago, a year and a half ago. I don't know. It was a year ago. I don't remember. Alex, since you're new to this, Darren, you've done this before. I'm going to do a brief introduction, then we're off to the races. Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two of the coolest people creating content and experiences, I think, ever. She is a phenomenal actor, writer, producer, and musician who began appearing in several shorts, features, and TV series before making her lead role debut in 2014's impeccable Starry Eyes. She helped it accrue 18 nominations and seven wins, including several for Best Actress, and made it one of the most talked-about indie horror films, arguably, of all time, definitely here in this room. 
However, that was just the beginning. She went on to star in the award-winning Tales of Halloween anthology film. Marcus Dunson's The Neighbor earned critical acclaim for her work in 2017's Midnighters, Red Island, and Jordan Rubin's The Drone. She not only starred in but wrote the dark horror comedy Homewrecker that was an official selection for Toronto's After Dark Film Fest, Fantasia, and Fantastic Fest. In 2019, she was a part of cinema history in revisiting the Overlook Hotel in Mike Flanagan's genre love letter, Dr. Sleep as Wendy Torrance. She is a bold and absolutely fearless storyteller whose commitment to her roles and decisions is a visceral all-out attack on our senses and our sense of reality. She is constantly leveling up and taking us to places we've never even been as an audience. A true artist. Also here with us, a returning guest and friend of the show. He is an icon, experience builder, and dreamer whose work creating commercials and music videos led him to helm the sequel to Saw, quickly turning it into one of the most well-known franchises in film history. Each consecutive entry he worked on opened at number one at the box office three years in a row. He went on to bring us films like the award-winning Repo, the Genetic Opera, Mother's Day, 11-11-11, The Devil's Carnival and its sequel, The Barons, Abattoir, St. Agatha, and more. He's also had us step into his stories and worlds unlike any creator has done before with stunning immersive experiences like tension and lust directing upwards of a hundred actors who partake in thrilling one-on-one experiences with the audience that can last even up to seven months he's won awards he's changed the game he continues to innovate imagine and inspire unlike anyone else out there and we appreciate his work so much his latest project is an awe-inspiring puzzle of twists and turns played out within the backdrop of stunning Thailand. The film is Death of Me. We are honored to welcome star Alex Esso and director Darren Lynn Bowsman. Yeah. Can we just end the podcast here? Because it's all going to be downhill from that. I mean, that was incredible. I just texted Alex in the middle of your speech and I just said, I want you as my hype man. I just need to follow you here. And before I walk into a room, if you could just do that, that would be great. <laughs> you guys don't need the hype, man. It's all true. Every single last yeah. word of it. Well, you guys do. I mean, your work way. is a testament to all that stuff. So, Alex, just to get things going, to start off with you, as we haven't yet had the opportunity to speak with you. So what was your earliest memory of being impacted or moved by the horror genre as a viewer? I mean, I guess probably the first time I felt afraid watching something, but that was like the dark crystal sure. and labyrinth and, and those sort of dark mystical eighties kids movies or, or older ones like the dark, the black cauldron, I mean, and stuff like that. I mean, there are definite moments that would really jar me really made an impression. It's interesting how a lot of those children's films around that era really pushed the limits, like movies like the witches and things like that, oh, you know? Totally. Yeah. And, but it was so fun. I mean, I love that about it. I love that it like wasn't completely safe in this magical land. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we've gotten a little soft in our, <laughs> in our yeah, ways these days. Yeah. <laughs> It's okay. I, I, just my son, I just tried to show my son the Dark Crystal last month and it lasted about 30 minutes and he, he noped right out. Oh, you know? no. Was it yeah. the sexies? He's still a little young. He's still a little young. What do, you, what do you think it is about that, Darren? Do you think that showing, I mean, we've got four kids as well and we're always trying to find gateway horror experiences, the ones that kind of brought us into the genre. Do you think that stuff still can attract and hold the attention of kids growing up today? Well, you know, it's crazy. And this is this is something that I've learned as I try to go back and revisit movies that I had fond memories of just don't because, you know, I, I much rather love the memory of what I remember it being than rewatching it now. Now, that that being so I tried to show them Legend and Dark Crystal because I love Legend. I mean, I love any movie like yeah. that. To me, the memory of watching Legend was such a it was scary. It was terrifying. It was beautiful. I remember unicorns and Tom Cruise being shirtless and whatever the Tom Cruise part being shirtless was correct. But the uh, everything else in my mind just wasn't what I remembered it being. There's the magical nostalgia of those movies, specifically anything Jim Henson did, because you've got real puppets and it's not relying on computer generated graphics. And that was amazing at the time. But now, you know, the cartoons he watches every single day has more technology, more bells and whistles than any of the movies that we had in the 80s. So, you know, I think on top of it being scary and there's scary imagery, 
I think that what enthralled me about it as a kid was the, the practicality of it all. It doesn't impress him. I don't think that impresses him as much as it does me when you see that they're working with these actual creatures. This is something we've talked to you about back on episode 42, but let's just get a brief refresher, just a bit about the things that drew you to the horror universe as a viewer. I mean, for me, you know, it's that thrill, that guttural feeling you get when you are disturbed or, or um, see that macabre image that, that sears itself in your brain. And I, I talk about this a lot that I don't notice when I watch a comedy that I love. Like I just watched that movie. Um, I'll think of the name of it in a second. Palm Springs. Is it called Palm Springs? It was just released. I, I loved it and I thought it was great, but I forgot about it four days later. Not because I didn't love it, because I did love it. But if I see something that disturbs me, I talk about it again and again and again and again. And I've mentioned that she's going to say, you're going to think I'm doing this to blow smoke and I'm not. But like I've mentioned starry eyes 20 times in these press things that I've been doing, because again, it has shocking imagery, horrible acts of things. And for me as a filmmaker and someone that navigated the Hollywood landscape, it struck a chord with me. So movies that can do that, that disgust me and horrify me, stay with me much longer than movies that might make me laugh or whatever. So I just love those types of movies a lot more. Alex, bringing up starry eyes, gosh, that first, there's one of the audition scenes that you do in that film where you're asked to kind of recreate a freak out where you're grabbing your hair and you're lying on the ground, you're writhing around, you're screaming like a demon. It's, I remember seeing that for the first time and just that image stuck with me for weeks, possibly. It almost made me stop watching it because I almost couldn't take what I was seeing. It was intense. Talk about getting to that place. And that scene in particular, was that a first take thing? How do you bring yourself back to that space over and over again if you're doing multiple takes? Talk a bit about that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there, there's so much to say about that specifically. Um, my dad was visiting set that day. That was the one day he came to visit set. <laughs> so that definitely gave me a little more to fight against because I couldn't allow that to have any bearing on what I did. So that was kind of tough. And it was one of those things where you just can't really plan it. You really just have to jump and just see, you know, that you're landing somewhere unknown, but you have at least a target, you know, uh, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, I am a huge fan of possession. It's one of my favorite horror movies. It's, it's one of the things I think that got me this part was the fact that I had seen that movie and Isabella Diani's scene in the subway was a hundred percent, uh, an inspiration. It really was an example of like, this is, this is where you have to go for this and so you just better commit because <laughs> nothing less than like that has to be at least at least the bar that has to at least be the goal and as long as you're trying to hit the kind of thing that she was doing in that subway i don't know it was really fun i mean it was it was terrifying but really fun and then i it was on the first take the one they ended up using was the first one that we did and uh, I thought that that was going to be that. And they said, could you do it one more time? <laughs> oh, wow. We need safety. Like, Anything for you guys. So, so, uh, so, yeah, I like took a few minutes, you know, just to compose myself and they didn't, you know, wipe the sweat and things and retouch the makeup and away we went. And then my dad and I went for lunch. <laughs> Are you a believer in possession and paranormal activity? Have you experienced any paranormal activity? I, I mean, I'm an eternal skeptic at heart. And uh, I mean, I had this one thing happened. I was in Hawaii with a friend of mine and we rented this house in Kauai. And it was awesome. And, and I don't know, I was asleep one night and I opened my eyes and it looked like my friend was standing in the doorway with this really awful look on their face. And I was so positive that they were there. 
and I kept trying to be asleep. And then, you know, there was like a branch wrestling and the whole thing was gone. And I was like, well, that was unsettling. But I, I don't necessarily draw from that, that it was paranormal or that it was, you know, something, you know, it's, oh God, who was it who said it? I think it was like David Hume who said, what is more likely that the laws of nature have suddenly bent or broken themselves and in a way that is somehow in your favor or that you are mistaken in some way? That there is some other factor that is unconsidered or you know, you unacknowledged. Know what's crazy so, about par- paranormal is I've never, and again, I've, I've, I wish I could see, I mean, I walk around hoping to see shit. I, I've had two experiences that both times, like Alex, I completely write them off as either I, I was dosed with some sort of drug, I was <laughs> drunk, or I just misremembered it. And so my question is, for those that do have those experiences, how much of the time do we just write it off? Is it, oh, I was nothing. I was, I was, what I, I stayed at the Stanley Hotel which is Nestus Park, Colorado, which is a notoriously haunted hotel and the basis of The Shining, where Stephen King I, wrote, I guess, The Shining. But there is a su- supposed haunted room in that hotel. And we stayed there. My wife and I stayed there for three nights. And on the third night, we both, both of us had the same experience. And both of us spent the next day talking each other out. Like, no, that wasn't it. It was, it was not that we're misremembering it. It's not, that's not it. And so I wonder how many real paranormal experiences though are just talked away as no, it's we're crazy. That's not, that's not what really happened. That's a really good point. And by the way, if you hear a horrible, like literally the minute this podcast started, my monitor is started making this really loud noise. So if you guys can hear it, I will switch computers. I don't know if you can hear it or not. No, you no. don't hear it. It sounds perfectly on. Our, it looks good too. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I love the, I love the room you're in, man. That is oh, astounding. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. very moving. Uh, <laughs> Alex, you haven't been to their house, but you can't compare. Like saying you like this room is like, I, I can't, you go to their house and it is the most insane, batshit, crazy, <laughs> dark circus, macabre horror. Just, I don't even know what. It, it, every room is meticulously designed with the most well. And the thing which is crazy is, is that it is so classy and not try it's it's not, I, if i were to try to explain your house to my wife which i did she, she conjures images of like a hoarder you're like oh, you've got all these amazing <laughs> horror props everywhere and she's like we're not doing that, that and That's i was awesome. like no you don't understand it's so classy it oh. looks so nice that means the world oh, to us, man. So wow. Nice. This isn't the coolest thing anyone ever said. We oh, appreciate you know that what? so much. I, I, I forgot. I think I have it right here. Hold on. Hold on. That's well I mean if the I, background is any indication I, I told you guys when I was on last time, I had a horror prop for you and I never gave it to you. And it's been sitting on my desk. This is one of the needles from Saw 2. Oh, it was that oh when the pandemic is over. This is for you guys that I totally have forgotten to give you for a year now, a year and a half. So that's it incredible. Is still that's amazing. Oh that's awesome. Awesome. Thank you Dude, so thank much. Thank you so much. It means the world to us. Wow. We're going to frame it up nice. Yes, we'll get yeah, we'll make it look out. classy. We'll do it some justice. It's definitely. Like, definitely. Let her go and see your place when this thing is done, when the pandemic is over and you're back in LA. You just got to see their house. It's insane. Oh, we would love Alex to come by. Seriously. Yeah. Alex. Oh my God, people. that would be incredible. The Boo Crew will be right back. In a place outside time lies a mystical realm of sound and vision. A wondrous civilization. Where good and evil struggle to possess the dark crystal. Let's get into Death of Me. First of all, with all the work that you've been doing, Darren, on Spiral and immersive theater projects, you know, you're right coming off the back end of, of this incredible run with St. Agatha that is still going strong. When did you have time to fit this in? And also at a time when you had said, 
you kind of wanted to take a break from features for a while and focus on immersive and other things. What about this script kind of drew you back into it and said, you know, now I'm doing a movie. I'm going to Thailand. I mean, there's a couple. There's a, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. There's not one answer. And I think I did do three years of basically just doing immersive theater and, and immersive content. Immersive still doesn't pay the bills. It, there's not there's not that type of demand yet for it. It's it is a I'm getting more and more as a 50-50 in my life where 50% of my, my ability to survive comes from film and 50% is coming from immersive. But, you know, two years ago, it was more like 2080 that 80% was coming from movies, 20% was coming from immersive theater. So there's, there's always the ability that I, I've got to provide for my family. But then finding the right project or finding one that you actually believe in and care about and think could actually have a shot at being something cool I love religious horror. I've always loved any type of movie that deals in faith or belief. And I've got this, you know, the older I get and the more I kind of struggle with my own, what do I believe in? I find the hypocrisy of people judging other religions just ludicrous to me because how am I to judge anyone when I was brought up believing that if you pray to a man in the clouds, he will cure cancer or do whatever. All belief in of itself is, is kind of crazy when you realize what it is you're actually believing in. You're believing in the supernatural. So I always love movies that kind of delve into someone's belief system. And so this at its core is a movie about belief. It's about what this island believes in what, uh, you know, and they're willing to do for this belief. So I think that that spoke to me. Obviously, getting a chance to, to go to Thailand is something you don't get every day and, and getting to spend you know, a few months working in Thailand, which was awesome. And, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm saying this and it's going to sound ridiculous. Like I'm making shit up and I'm not, but, but starry eyes and Google my Google me before this movie. And you'll see me talking about starry eyes from two years ago, getting a chance to work with the talent, getting a chance to work with Alex and, and Luke and, and everyone. It was just, it was such a great experience that I couldn't turn it down. Now, this film being written by Ari Margolis, James Morley III, and the writing debut of David Tish, what is the added excitement and passion in a project when it involves people's initial creative leaps? I would imagine there are some very tangible qualities of working on a debut project for other pe- that other people are involved in that one kind of wishes it can be almost bottled up or something. Is, is there anything tangible about that? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, David Tish is who I dealt with the most. He was the one that came on with me when I, he's actually one of the producers on the movie. Um, the movie, the first draft of the script was actually set uh, around voodoo and uh, uh, numerous reasons we didn't pursue that idea, that, that mythology. One, I felt that I'd seen so many movies that, that had voodoo as a backdrop and to the locale, you can't set a movie that is, based in that belief system and try to do it in Southeast Asia and have it be as plausible as what you would be if you try to lean into the actual culture. So David took a stab at changing the mythology and basing it in something that maybe people haven't seen before. Um, meaning that that actually, because I, I think in the first draft, I mean, there were voodoo dolls, there were all sorts of things that were used. And, you know, it was exciting because not only is David the producer, but he, it's his first kind of big writing credit. So anytime you work with someone like that, their energy is infectious and palpable. And I think that, you know, working with him, his energy was just infectious. Yeah, Darren, in, in regards to the uh, production of the movie, the Thai people are very superstitious when it comes to things like ghosts and paranormal or their uh, Buddhist spiritual beliefs. Did you have to get special consultation uh, permission or advice on filming this movie? You know what you just said that I totally forgot all about it um, until you mentioned that. Alex, do you remember that all of the spirit, I don't know if they're called spirit boxes, but the little houses that were at yeah. the end of everyone's street or the mm-hmm. end of everyone's property that you yeah. basically, every business had them. Um, I know the hotel that I stayed in had it. Um, yeah. There are these, these houses at the edge of basically the driveway where you'd bring out offerings. And it was the idea was, is you give the spirit or whatever a home and you bring out offerings every morning. I remember going for walks in the morning, you would see like the bellman bringing out oranges and things like that with incense going, which was crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you one thing that that was kind of interesting that I've never experienced on a movie before was that we had someone from the government that was on set on days where they would basically ensure how we handled the depiction of religion. There's three days in particular that I can, that I can remember, but there's a scene in the movie where the two main characters, uh, Maggie Q and Luke are having sex and they're in front of a temple. 
they sent out the government agents basically to watch that scene to make sure that there was nothing that we were doing that would be offensive to Thai culture. And they had a huge book, this, this huge binder that they would like reference to make sure that we were not overstepping our bounds or breaking any sort of rules. And it was the one time that I was actually told on the shoot that I couldn't shoot something where they basically came over and, and talked to the producers and said, you, I had to change the angle because in the background, you were seeing things that would have been offensive to the culture and to the religious belief. I do know that there were times that I was told I couldn't shoot certain things because of like this movie has nothing to do with uh, Buddha or anything like that. But there was a lot of Buddha statues around. And so you would you would try to do a wide shot and they'd be like, no, 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 you can't. You can't do that. There's a Buddha statue right there. It's disrespectful. You can't do it. So I've never experienced that in America obviously, but, but there were some changes that had to be made shooting something like that there. Alex, there's this ominous tone to your character in the movie that keeps guessing as to why she lives in this remote island or what her motivations are all about. What was the direction or motivation given uh, or suggested to you by Darren for your character? I mean, I think one of the things that Darren said that I very much agreed with was how neutral she must seem sort of like even sort of with her daughter it's not a very it's not a super warm relationship necessarily and i don't know if darren said this but originally the part was written for a woman in her 40s i think to play the mom so we came up with a different backstory for her feel free to jump in whenever darren um but it was uh sort of like it's now an age range where it does kind of cast doubt. It is kind of like a big sister, even though you're trying to come off as her mom. It's really, I mean, that alone I think is kind of unsettling in and of itself. Well, that um, whole relationship you have with her is, I, I, I think is great. And that first time that we meet you guys and she calls you by your name and you said, call me mom. Like the, that, that whole kind of thing is just weird and <laughs> awkward off the top. Exactly. Because it could be one of those things. Like sometimes I remember testing, calling my mom by her name when I was a kid and that got shut down like right away. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my name is mom. So, but it's, but it isn't quite that because it's not quite warm enough to be that. You know, one of the things that I always saw is that character. And again, for those listening to the podcast, there, there's going to be spoilers. I just don't know how to talk without saying sure, no, spoilers. Get it, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, one of my favorite characters in cinema is Rosemary's Baby, and it's Ruth Gordon's character. And I wanted to try to, to create a more sane and not as over-the-top Ruth Gordon character. And that's what the, she serves in the story purpose, which is friends to the meat character while manipulating them with, oh, here, drink this, which is the, here, put this tannis root around your neck. Like everything, and, and even Ruth Gordon bringing shakes to Rosemary. And if you watch Alex, either she's always making smoothies or shakes or asking if she wants to drink something, which yeah. is, again, a, a control method in this, which, which I, again, one of the things I like about movies, when you go back and watch it and you realize that the signs were there, you just misrepresented them. So it's not her being this friendly, nice, here, have a, have a smoothie. It's take this fucking smoothie because I need your shit to black out for this yeah. next thing. And so I, I love that about, about that character, that she has to be able to play friendly and nice and concerned yet at the same time yeah. have the dual purpose to make sure that that plays for her concern is not necessarily for Maggie, but to make sure that Maggie will end up where she needs her to end up at the time she's supposed to be there. Another amazing thing about Alex and the different roles that she chooses is we've never seen her in a role like this, which is amazing. Now, Alex, was that something that compelled you to this project? I mean, in your trajectory of doing things that you've never done before, almost from project to project, these giant, massive leaps, leaps of faith, really. Was that something that was a part of your decision? Absolutely. Yeah, I was super into it. Well, especially when Darren made the Ruth Gordon connection, because I really love that too. I really loved the sort of casualness of Sam where she, it's not even like she's being overly nice or hospitable. She's just kind of neutrally concerned. Is there something about that that I really loved? Cause it was so realistic, you know, it was truly sociopathic. Someone motivated by a deep belief in something. Speaking about realistic, talk about about creating the lore and the world of 
what's going on around Christine and Neil. There are these amazing symbols, these insane costumes. What was the secret to building that world and making it all feel so real? Like it feels almost like a documentary in times. Well, I think I'm going to try to find something. I'm looking on my phone right now for it. So one of the first things that, that I wanted to do and I made sure of is that when you're doing any movie that deals with faith or belief, I wanted to base it in some sort of reality. It, it had to be based with a seedling of an idea that was real. And we've seen tons of movie of kind of religious folklore, most recently Midsommar, but go back to Wicker Man, which is one of my favorite movies in the entire world. And I think what makes Wicker Man so great is the attention to the festivities and the songs and the, the ribbons and the dancing, and it's a joyous occasion. So we found this passage in a book, and this is kind of where it all started, where the idea of how do we shift it from being a story set with a voodoo culture into something else. And it's the, the subject of the book, and this is within a chapter of Thai culture, is human sacrifice. And it says, it is widely rumored that under the city pillars lie the bones of people who were sacrificed to become guardian spirits of the town. Kit Nafa, I can't say the last name, writing about the history of Trat's town pillar reports that according to some of the elders, before the installation of the town pillar could take place, there was a public announcement that during night, someone would go knock loudly on doors and call to people to be the town spirit. Naturally, if one should ever answer back, that person would be sacrificed. Late at night, when all was quiet, those persons went out, wrapped on doors of the houses, and if no one answered, someone was forcibly removed. And then it goes on to talk about how upon digging up some of these town pillars, they would find pregnant women, the bones and, and remains of, of this. So that, that idea was something that was kind of scary, that it was this celebration that they had about this person is sacrificing themselves for the town to be the basically watcher over this town. And a lot of times people would willingly, like willingly, you know, say, I'll do it. They'll willingly say, yes, take me, take me. It was an honor. And they were revered and they were put up on a pedestal and they became almost godlike in this thing because of what they've done with the town. But sometimes there was no one who would, who would, who would uh, say, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, then they were forcibly taken. And that's kind of where the lore of this idea came from. And then from that idea, we just built out the mythology, the celebration and the parades and all of that that take place. And all the cool masks and everything. So each, each of those looks were designed with all this in mind. Yeah. So, you know, and again, I, I, I love Wicker Man. And if I could steal every scene from Wicker Man, I would, because it's just one of my favorite. The, again, the original Wicker Man, not the Nicholas not the, not the bees. So, oh my God. Hold on, I don't have it. Um, I kept all the masks because I thought the masks look cool. Um, oh oh my gosh, yes. I wanted to see well, them. That on. was my side. next question. Oh my God. Hold on. Uh, is it here? Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. It's like Christmas. <laughs> I got, here's one of them. It's one of my favorite Christopher Lee roles. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, my oh, my God. God. But I love, <laughs> I loved in, in the last scene of Wicker Man where Christopher Lee is walking. And there's a parade of people behind him wearing absurd kind of homemade animal masks. And they're all like, I've like weird face paint. They're carrying staffs. And it was so it was just, it was, it was joyous and flamboyant and weird. And it was, I loved it. And so I just loved the idea of, and specifically the scene where, where Luke, he goes out and he's trying to find Christine and he gets caught in the middle of the parade and they're in his face and they're making weird faces at him. And I just, I just love the bizarre absurdity of it. Where's the pendant and what went into the design? Does it mean anything? So uh, again, yes and no. So we wanted to make sure that it was its own unique design. But this this is one of the kind of joys of working in Thailand, and it, not necessarily joys, but things that I found humorous. Um, there was a language barrier, and you know I've shot, I've been lucky to shoot all over the world. I've shot in Japan, I've shot in Barcelona, and I've been always able to maneuver the cultural differences. But with Thailand there was a lot of time they would just say yes. And I think it was because it was offensive to say no. You didn't want to tell someone no. So there was a lot of yeses. And 
only to realize when you showed up on set, they didn't necessarily understand or get what you were trying to do. So, so on Maddie, on, on um, Maggie's necklace, I referenced Rosemary's baby and a tannis root that she had to wear. And, oh yeah. Yeah. The tannis root. They had no idea. <laughs> right. yeah, and then I was like, I want, I want a sigil and they didn't understand sigil. And so I have one on my arm. I have this thing on my arm and I was like, like sigil. And they're like, okay, okay, we got it. Well, they showed up to set and they had this exact one, which is from a tension experience and not that. So they had this big bulky ass sigil. Wow. They had, but the best was they had like four of them because there was like a hero one. There was like a soft one. There was one that could be like, so we had to quickly break it on set to get it down to something that wasn't the exact thing as this uh, to try to create it. But what's, if you look at it, it, what we end up doing, I think is really cool it is a circle with a kind of weird shape and it's the shape of a pregnant woman lying down in the earth. And so it's like the earth and then it's a pregnant woman's belly, which is all again, some it's foreshadowing to what's going to happen with her and that she will be that person laid to the earth for this. So that's what the symbol is. They're all carrying, they're all carrying it around. So who has the pendant now? Where is it? Might be in there. I always steal props. You got uh, it. You, you got to. it. <laughs> so I've got, you know, I, I've got, you can't really tell, but each of the posters back here there, I can't, I'm on a big computer. I'd turn my thing around to show you, but there are props from all my movies and they're, they're framed in the thing. Oh, but but wow, awesome. I would also ship stuff back. So like when I was shooting the saw movies, I shipped back hundreds of needles and I shipped back like body parts of things. And I would just ship them back. Well, it was a lot harder to ship ship back from uh, Thailand. It didn't work like that. So I think I got the mask and I got, uh, I'm trying to think if I got anything else. <laughs> I don't think so. I think the pennant is probably uh, probably laid to rest somewhere in Thailand. No, that's wrong. No, that's oh, wrong. Boy. No, we had it when we, we did a pickup day in Los Angeles and we had it there. So mm. maybe Maggie has it. Maybe, maybe it exists. How about you, Alex? Do you keep, do you tend to keep any moment, mementos from any of the films you've worked on? Sometimes, I mean, it's usually in the form of wardrobe, not so much props, but I've kept one or two things. Like, I mean, I have, obviously I have that starry eyes pendant still. That was, yeah, that was really nice that they let me keep that, but not, not really besides uh, I don't know, maybe I should give it a shot. Start, start stealing stuff. Leo, you had a question about music, man. Yeah, Darren, right off the bat, the constant eerie music by Mark Seyfried sets the tone of the movie immediately from the opening scene. Uh, Talk about working with Mark to sonically develop the haunting music of the movie. Mark is one of my favorite composers. I've worked with him now three times. He did Abattoir, which is the first time we worked together. And then uh, St. Agatha, now this. And I'm going to mention St. Agatha before I get into this. If you listen to the music of St. Agatha, it is so weird and haunting and crazy. He's just a guy that that I don't know if he sits at home and just smokes a lot of pot and then comes up with weird sound designs. But the minute I heard his score of St. Agatha, I was like, this is my composer. I'm using this guy again and again and again. So I came to him on this movie and he turned me down and he said he at the time he was on a guy. He was on a Netflix show snatch the netflix show or it was it was a guy ritchie netflix show but on a one of those things and he said he couldn't do it and so i begged him and he said no he couldn't do it and he apologized and so we went off and we shot the movie and i had a great young composer come in i really liked the guy but when i heard his music it didn't do what mark's music did for me in the other two movies um And I called Mark up and I said, do me a favor, please listen to five minutes of this movie. And he heard what the other guy did. And he goes, this is a great composer, but it's not your style. And I said, right. And he goes, okay, I'll do it. And so he came on and literally, I think he had 11 days. He had 11 days from the the time he started to do everything and to deliver the score. So, so yeah, he, he pulled out a miracle for us on that one. Hey, Alex, you get to work with some, awesome practical effects i'm trying not to give any spoilers away about a particular scene with you but it's something you are no stranger to you've even brought that to your own film homewrecker as well what do you love about that element of horror and what do you think it does to an audience or what does it do to you that just oh well i mean i i think well placed viscera is a wonderful way to punctuate a story or a character arc or i mean 
when it's done when it's done well and especially when it's creative you know i mean especially talking about saw movies my god it's a veritable playground of you know artistic gore so but for homewrecker what i what i like about it in homewrecker is that it kind of it doesn't quite go there for most of the movie it just kind of flirts with being on the edge like is this a joke (laughs) is this a comedy still and then it just kind of takes a turn and it makes lisa loeb stay possibly turns it into the most terrifying song ever made oh my god that's my favorite that's like my favorite scene of the movie i just added home record to my queue i didn't alice and her scene i just added it so oh great it's so So precious is brilliant in it she's so excellent she's so funny and so natural at the same time she she makes her character and that's so realistic yeah well it's, it's funny because on that film you've really touched on a, on something i really haven't seen in in a film before but exploring that awkward tension that you have with these people who just don't get the hint you know what i mean and it just takes right. it to the next level <laughs> yeah and kind of like the limitations of etiquette and courtesy and i, I like to joke that michelle and linda are kind of like opposite extremes of the female psyche at war with each other. We have a couple more questions uh, before we let you guys go. And Alex just wanted to touch on briefly your work in 2019's Dr. Sleep was astounding and you brought a whole new Wendy Torrance to the screen. And Flanagan says it was you who was the first cast as far as bringing new life to these characters from the original film. What did it mean to you to channel that character and what Shelley engraved in our minds while making it your own at the same time. We would imagine that was something that might've been either intimidating or a big challenge. All, all of the above. It was exceptional. It was just such an incredibly singular experience. And her performance in that is, is one of my favorite female performances of all time. I mean, I have like a short list of favorites and it's on there because of how how much it actually grounds a lot of the more fantastic, surreal things that happen. And the the unhinged Jack Nicholson is, you know, reinforced and made more dimensional by her reaction to him. And man, it was so intimidating, but also like the most exhilarating, like the first day when we first started rolling, you know, and I just got to go and do it. And oh man, it was, it was so cool. As a fan of The Shining, as a fan of The Shining, when Alex showed me the thing, it is so, they can talk about nostalgia. I've probably seen The Shining 300 times. Oh, yeah. You see see those pictures that, and you will forget the pictures, the movie. You see like your back at the, your back. And it's just, it is so, the attention to detail, the sound design, like everything about it, just you were back. And it brought you back to that time and place. So amazing. Yeah, it was chills, chills, absolutely chills. Amazing. Oh, being on those sets was insane. I got to throw a tennis ball in the Colorado lounge and I got to have a whiskey in the gold room. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> <Crazy>. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I got to sit in the bathtub in room 237. And oh, shit. Like it, was, it was just insane. It was just, like, I never in my wildest dreams did, did I think. I mean, it was crazy. Coming up, Alex, that we're going to see you in Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass. Is it currently filming or in production? What's the status of the series? So we have been filming for almost a month now. And uh, it's been actually moving along at a really good pace. There's a ton of COVID, I guess, sanctions. And, you know, everybody has to be super covered at all times. And we all get tested twice a week. And there's a ton of measures taken, which... I've been told is challenging. I haven't started yet. Um, but I've been told that like, that's a difficult thing to get used to is being so separate from everybody. Cause you know, 
on a good set and especially on Flanagan's sets. Cause he works with, you know, his guys, like his core crew all the time. So they're like a well-oiled machine and there's a wonderful social aspect to it. And that's kind of gone. I mean, it, it, which is a, kind of a shame, but it also means that they make all their days. <laughs> And they're on a really good schedule. So they're they're getting it done. And from what I hear, it's going really well. So I'm I'm excited to to jump into that as, as well. Oh, we can't wait. And you're gonna show up, I believe, on Bly makes its debut in October, right? Yes, I am British. Very cool. We yeah. can't wait. Nice. We can't wait. No, we can't wait to see okay. you. There's a certain poetry to all Flanagan's scripts and a real elegance to his work, and it it's it's going to yeah. be thrilling to see you in that world as well. I'm, I'm excited. It was fun. Darren really wanted to talk about these. You've been doing immersive experiences throughout this pandemic, one of which I confident. I believe that that wrapped up recently. I confident, right? Yeah. And we literally, when we end this podcast, we launch the tickets for the new one. The minute this thing ends. So, yeah, Whoa, that was one day nice. die, right? One day die. Yeah. So I, I just love that uh, what it does for an audience or a, a person, you're no longer a spectator. You are active in it. You're the middle of it. So you're interacting with actors and you're interacting with the storyline and manipulating and changing the storyline. So with, with I Confidant, you know, that was, I was really proud of what we were able to do with that. It was basically, we pushed out a fake pen pal site that you basically meet another person that was at home quarantined and we would kind of introduce you and instigate the opening conversations. And uh, we did it through th- the 3X structure was we did it through emails. Then it went to text messages, phone calls, then eventually video calls. And we had dozens of these stories taking place all over the world that all seemed completely separate from one another. And then throughout the course of the time with iConfidant, you started to realize that every one of the stories were connected and all the audience was trying to figure out their connection to the story, like how they were connected. So these dozens of random encounters taking place were all part of one much bigger, larger story. And that was, that was really exciting. So we finished that about two months ago and then we launched um, One Day Die, which is something that I, I started with uh, these two magicians that I'm, it's so crazy. I have a, you can't see, but on the left of me, I have all of these magic tricks. I've got, I'm really into magic. And um, two of my favorite tricks are from the magicians who are working with me on this thing, uh, Danny Garcia and Blake. And then um, I'm working with the writer of Iconfidant, Josh Dietz. And uh, it's a, it's an at-home seance that you basically buy a ticket and a box, a box shows up to your house that you can't open until the seance begins. Oh and uh, it's a 90 minute seance, but antics ensue due to things inside the box. Oh um, my God. So, That's cool. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's really exciting. And we're doing it like a movie. I mean, it's being done on location with actors and sets that are built. It's just, we're streaming it. And so instead of coming to the place, you're going to be watching it. But to give you that interaction and that personal touch, you're interacting with a tangible thing, which is this box full of these horrific things inside it. Oh my God. That's the coolest thing in the world. That is the coolest thing in the world, man. Congratulations on coming up with this. I can't wait for this to unfold. All right. One last question, Darren, obviously, you know what we're going to ask about the twist of spiral. Okay. Yes. 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 We got it. We got it. A little something about spiral. The book of saw, right? Been delayed another year. Any breaking news you can give us anything you can give us. Well, I'll tell you that, yeah, you know, I'm so I'm so proud of the movie, and I think that it was it, coming back and returning was such a unique and insane experience because you know I haven't made a Saw movie in over a decade, and so I showed up to set and it was literally the same team, it was the same people, the same props guys and stunt guys and transpo guys. You know, I had grown older, fatter, and bolder, and they uh, they are still there, and it was like this, you know, and also stepping onto a Saw movie and you look and you're you're there with Chris Rock and Samuel Jackson and Max Minghella, it was crazy because it was like, you have this team of A-list actors in this franchise that you helped start, you know, however long ago, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. Uh, it was crazy. I can tell you that it's, it, it definitely 
it, it feels like a Saw movie at times and other times it's its own completely different thing. Chris Rock had the idea of this and it's, it furthers the Saw mythology, yet it, it takes it in a completely, I think, fresh direction. I'm really excited. And I will tell I you, I will tell you we did, a, we did a, a, an early screening of it when we thought it was coming out. And it was so awesome to sit in the theater because I'm a huge Chris Rock fan. And it, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you how we just random and just fucked up and meta the world is. Is the first time he called me and actually spoke to me on the phone, I was watching Tambourine on Netflix and so, which is a special. And I, I, I remember this, 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 this surreal moment that I, I'm watching it and I'm looking at my phone ringing Chris Rock. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, no one's going to believe me. And uh, he, he is hilarious as a person, obviously, but the movie is not a comedy. But there are a couple of really amazing, hilarious things that take place because it is Chris Rock. And, and sitting in the audience, I've never heard people laugh at a Saw movie. You just, it doesn't happen. And you hear, you hear this like uproarious laughter and then immediate silence because it turns on a dime. And, you know, that was, that's what I'm excited about when more people in the majority of the world gets to see this thing. It, it, the tone is just so fresh and new and different. And Chris is just amazing in the movie. I, I'm excited. Oh, my God. This sounds uh, so fun. Oh, my God. I yeah. can't wait to we see this. We all cannot wait. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> can't wait. Awesome, you guys. Thank, <laughs> Thank you both you so much. much. Seriously. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. That was so much fun. Yes. We're huge fans Thank of both of you. you, obviously. Oh, it was nice. amazing. Nice. It was so Seriously cool. Seriously amazing. That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 160. Special thanks to our guests, Darren Lynn Bowsman and Alex Esso. Follow at Alex Esso and at Darren Bowsman on Instagram and at time of release, see Death of Me in theaters on demand in digital Friday, October 2nd. If you liked our conversation with Darren and Alex, Alex, go back and hang out with Darren again on episode 42. Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kelch from Starry Eyes on episode 41. And Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel on episode 85. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying the sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.